Section 58 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of casual labour in general, and that of the rubbish carters in particular. The subject of casual labour is one of such vast importance in connection with the welfare of a nation and its people, and one of which the causes, as well as consequences, seem to be so utterly ignored by economical writers, and unheeded by the public, that I propose here saying a few words upon the matter in general, with the view of enabling the reader the better to understand the difficulties that almost all unskilled and many skilled labourers have to contend with in this country. By casual labour I mean such labour as can obtain only occasional, as contradistinguished from constant, employment. In this definition I include all classes of workers, literate and illiterate, skilled and unskilled, whose professions, trades or callings expose them to be employed temporarily rather than continuously, and whose incomes are in a consequent degree fluctuating, casual and uncertain. In no country in the world is there such an extent, and at the same time such a diversity, of casual labour as in Great Britain. This is attributable to many causes, commercial and agricultural, natural and artificial, controllable and uncontrollable. I will first show what are the causes of casual labour, and then point out its effects. The causes of casual labour may be grouped under two heads. 1. The brisk and slack seasons, and fit times, or periodical increase and decrease of work in certain occupations. 2. The surplus hands, appertaining to the different trades. First, as to the briskness or slackness of employment in different occupations. This depends in different trades on different causes, among which may be enumerated a. The weather, b. The seasons of the year, c. The fashion of the day, d. Commerce and accidents. I shall deal with each of these causes seriatim. A. The labour of thousands is influenced by the weather. It is suspended or prevented in many instances by stormy or rainy weather, and in some few instances it is promoted by such a state of things. Among those whose labour cannot be executed on wet days, or executed but imperfectly, and who are consequently deprived of their ordinary means of living on such days, are paviors, pipe-layers, bricklayers, painters of the exteriors of houses, slaters, fishermen, watermen, plying with their boats for hire, the crews of the river steamers, a large body of agricultural labourers, such as hedgers, ditchers, mowers, reapers, ploughmen, thatchers and gardeners, costermongers and all classes of street sellers to a great degree, street performers and showmen. With regard to the degree in which agricultural, or indeed in this instance woodland, labour may be influenced by the weather, I may state that a few years back there had been a fall of oaks on an estate belonging to Colonel Craddock, near Greta Bridge, and the poor people, old men and women, in the neighbourhood were selected to strip off the bark for the tanners under the direction of a person appointed by the proprietor. For this work they were paid by the basket load. The trees lay in an open and exposed situation, and the rain was so incessant that the barkers could scarcely do any work for the whole of the first week, 
but kept waiting under the nearest shelter in the hopes that it would clear up. In the first week of this employment, nearly one-third of the poor persons who had commenced their work with eagerness had to apply for some temporary parochial relief. A rather curious instance this of a parish suffering from the casualty of a very humble labour, and actually from the attempt of the poor to earn money and do work prepared for them. On the other hand, some few classes may be said to be benefited by the rain which is impoverishing others. These are cabmen, who are the busiest on showery days, scavengers, umbrella makers, clog and pattern makers. I was told by the omnibus people that their vehicles filled better in hot than in wet weather. But the labour of thousands is influenced also by the wind. An easterly wind prevailing for a few days will throw out of employment 20,000 dock labourers and others who are dependent on the shipping for their employment, such as lumpers, corn porters, timber porters, shipbuilders, sailmakers, lightermen, watermen, and indeed almost all those who are known as longshoremen. The same state of things prevails at Hull, Bristol, Liverpool, and all our large ports. Frost, again, is equally inimicable to some labourers' interests. The frozen-out market gardeners are familiar to almost everyone, and indeed all those who are engaged upon the land may be said to be deprived of work by severely cold weather. In the weather alone, then, we find a means of starving thousands of our people. Rain, wind and frost are many a labourer's natural enemies, and to those who are fully aware of the influence of the elements upon the living and comforts of hundreds of their fellow creatures, the changes of weather are frequently watched with a terrible interest. I am convinced that altogether a wet day deprives not less than 100,000 and probably nearer 200,000 people including builders, bricklayers and agricultural labourers, of their ordinary means of subsistence, and drives the same number to the public houses and beer shops. On this part of the subject I have collected some curious facts. Thus not only decreasing their income, but positively increasing their expenditure, and that perhaps in the worst of ways. Nor can there be fewer dependent on the winds for their bread, if we think of the vast number employed, either directly or indirectly, at the various ports of this country, and then remember that at each of these places the prevalence of a particular wind must prevent the ordinary arrival of shipping, and so require the employment of fewer hands, we shall have some idea of the enormous multitude of men in this country who can be starved by a nipping and an eager air. If in London alone there are 20,000 people deprived of food by the prevalence of an easterly wind, and I had the calculation from one of the principal officers of the St. Catherine Dock Company, surely it will not be too much to say that throughout the country there are not less than 50,000 people whose living is thus precariously dependent. Altogether, I am inclined to believe that we shall not be over the truth if we assert there are between 100,000 and 200,000 individuals and their families, or half a million of people, dependent on the elements for their support in this country. But this calculation refers to those classes only who are deprived of a certain number of days' work by an alteration of the weather, a cause that is essentially ephemeral in its character. The other series of natural events influencing the demand for labour in this country are of a more continuous nature, 
the stimulus and the depression enduring for weeks rather than days. I allude to the second of the four circumstances above mentioned as inducing briskness or slackness of employment in different occupations, namely b. the seasons. These are the seasons of the year, and not the arbitrary seasons of fashion, of which I shall speak next. The following classes are among those exposed to the uncertainty of employment, and consequently of income, from the above cause, since it is only in particular seasons that particular works, such as buildings, will be undertaken, or that open-air pleasure excursions will be attempted. Carpenters, builders, brickmakers, painters, plasterers, paper-hangers, rubbish-carters, sweeps, and riggers and lumpers, the latter depending mainly on the arrival of the timber-ships to the Thames, and this owing to the ice in the Baltic Sea and in the River St. Lawrence and so on, takes place only at certain seasons of the year. Coal-whippers and coal-porters, the coal-trade being much brisker in winter, market-porters and those employed in summer in steamboat, railway, van and barge excursions. Then there are the casualties attending agricultural labour, for although the operations of nature are regular, even as the seed-time follows the harvest, there is almost invariably a smaller employment of labour after the completion of the haymaking, the sheep-shearing and the grain-reaping labours. For the hay and corn harvests, it is well known that there is a periodical immigration of Irishmen and women who clamour for the casual employment. Others again leave the towns for the same purpose. The same result takes place also in the fruit and pea-picking season for the London green markets, while in the winter such people return some to their own country and some to form a large proportion of the casual class in the metropolis. A tall Irishman of about thirty-four or thirty-five, whom I had to see when treating of the religion of the street Irish, leaves his accustomed crossing-sweeping at all or most of the seasons I have mentioned, and returns to it for the winter at the end of October, while his wife and children are then so many units to add to the casualties of the street sale of apples, nuts and onions by overstocking the open-air markets. The autumnal season of hop-picking is the grand rendezvous for the vagrancy of England and Ireland, the stream of London vagrancy flowing frequently into Kent at that period, and afterwards flowing back with increased volume. Men, women and children are attracted to the hop harvest. The season is over in less than a month, and then the casual labourers engaged in it, and they are nearly all casual labourers, must divert their industry, or their endeavours for a living, into other channels, swelling the amount of casualty in unskilled work or street trade. Numerically, to estimate the influence of the seasons on the labour market of this country is almost an overwhelming task. Let us try, however. There are in round numbers one million agricultural labourers in this country, saying that in the summer four labourers are employed for every three in the winter. There would be 250,000 people and their families or say one million of individuals, deprived of their ordinary subsistence in the winter-time. This, of course, does not include those who come from Ireland to assist at the harvest-getting. How many these may be, I have no means of ascertaining. Added to these there are the natural vagabonds, whom I have before estimated at another hundred thousand, see page 408, volume 1, and who generally help at the harvest-work or the fruit or hop-picking. 
Then there are the carpenters, who are 163,000 in number, the builders 9,200, the brickmakers 18,000, the painters 48,200, the coal whippers 9,200, the coal miners 110,000, making altogether 350,000 people, and estimating that for every four hands employed in the brisk season, there are only three required in the slack. We have 80,000 more families, or 300,000 people, deprived of their living by the casualty of labour. So that if we assert that there are at the least, including agricultural labourers, 1,250,000 people thus deprived of their usual means of living, we shall not be very wide of the truth. The next cause of the briskness or slackness of different employments is C. Fashion. The London fashionable season is also the parliamentary season, and is the briskest from about the end of February to the middle of July. The workmen most affected by the aristocratic, popular or general fashions are tailors, ladies' habit-makers, boot-and-shoe-makers, hatters, glovers, milliners, dressmakers, mancho-makers, drawn-and-straw-bonnet-makers, artificial flower-makers, plumassures, stay-makers, silk and velvet weavers, saddlers, harness-makers, coach-builders, cabmen, job-coachmen, farriers, livery-stable-keepers, poulterers, pastry-cooks, confectioners, and so on and so on. The above-mentioned classes may be taken, according to the occupation abstract of the last census, at between 500,000 and 600,000, and assuming the same ratio as to the difference of employment between the brisk and the slack seasons of the trades, or in other words, that 25% less hands are required at the slack than at the brisk time of these trades, we have another 150,000 people who with their families may be estimated altogether at, say, 500,000, who are thrown out of work at a certain season, and have to starve on as best they can for at least three months in the year. The last mentioned of the causes inducing briskness or slackness of employment are D, commerce and accidents. Commerce has its periodical fits and starts. The publishers, for instance, have their season, generally from October to March, as people read more in winter than in summer, and this arrangement immediately affects the printers and bookbinders. There is no change, however, as regards the newspapers and periodicals. Again, the early importation to this country of the new foreign fruits gives activity to the dock and wharf labourers and porters and carmen. Thus, the arrival here, generally in autumn, of the nut, chestnut and grape, raisin, produce of Spain, of the almond crops in Portugal, Spain and Barbary, the date harvest in Morocco and different parts of Africa, the orange gathering in Madeira and in St. Michael's, Tercera and other islands of the Azores, the fig harvest from the Levant, the plum harvest of the south of France, the currant picking of Zante, Ithaca and other Ionian islands, all these events give an activity as new fruit is always most saleable, to the traders in these southern productions, and more shopmen, shop-porters, wharf-labourers, and assistant lightermen are required, casually required, for the time. I was told by a grocer, with a country connection, and in a large way of business, that for three weeks or a month before Christmas he required the aid of four fresh hands, 
a shopman, an errand-boy, and two porters, one skilled in packing, for whom he had nothing to do after Christmas. If in the wide sweep of London trade there be one thousand persons, including the market salesmen, the retail butchers, the carriers, and so on, so circumstanced, then four thousand men are casually employed, and for a very brief time. The brief increase of the carrying business generally about Christmas, by road, water, or railway, is sufficiently indicated by the foregoing account. The employment again in the cotton and woollen manufacturing districts may be said to depend for its briskness on commerce rather than on the seasons. Accidents, or extraordinary social events, promote casual labour and then depress it. Often they depress without having promoted it. During the display of the Great Exhibition, there were some thousands employed in the different capacities of police, packing, cleaning, porterage, watching, interpreting, doorkeeping, and money-taking, cab-regulating, and so on. And after the close of the exhibition, how many were retained? Thus the Great Exhibition fostered casual or uncertain labour. Foreign revolutions, moreover, affect the trade of England. Speculators become timid and will not embark in trade or in any proposed undertaking. The foreign import and export trades are paralysed, and fewer clerks and fewer labourers are employed. Home political agitations also have the same effect, as was seen in London during the Corn Law riots about 35 years ago, when only eight members of the House of Commons supported a change in those laws. The Spafields riots in 1817, the affair in St. Peter's Field, Manchester in 1819, the disturbances and excitement during the trial of Queen Caroline in 1820-1821, to 1821, and the loss of life on the occasion of her funeral in 1821. The agitation previously to the passing of the Reform Bill had a like effect. The meeting on Kennington Common on the 10th of April. In all these periods, indeed, employment decreased. Labour is affected also by the death of a member of the royal family and the hurried demand for general mourning, but in a very small degree to what was once the case. A West End tailor employing a great number of hands did not receive a single order for mourning on the death of Queen Adelaide, while on the demise of the Princess Charlotte in 1817, thousands of operative tailors throughout the three kingdoms worked day and night and for double wages on the general mourning. Gluts in the markets, an increase of heavy bankruptcies and panics, such as were experienced in the money market in 1825 to 1826 and again in 1846, with the failure of banks and merchants, likewise have the effect of augmenting the mass of casual labour. For capitalists and employers, under such circumstances, expend as little as possible in wages or employment until the storm blows over. Bad harvests have a similar depressing effect. There are also the consequences of changes of taste. The abandonment of the fashions of gentlemen's wearing swords, as well as embroidered garments, flowing periwigs, large shoe buckles, all reduced able artisans to poverty by depriving them of work. So it was when, to carry on the war with France, Mr. Pitt introduced a tax on hair powder. Hundreds of hairdressers were thrown out of employment, many persons abandoning the fashion of wearing powder rather than pay the tax. 
there are now city gentlemen who can remember that when clerks they had sometimes to wait two or three hours for their turn at a barber's shop on a Sunday morning, for they could not go abroad until their hair was dressed and powdered, and their queues trimmed to the due standard of fashion. So it has been, moreover, in modern times, in the substitution of silk for metal buttons, silk hats for stuff, and in the supersedence of one material of dress by another. These several causes, then, which could only exist in a community of great wealth and great poverty, have rendered, and are continually rendering, the labour market uncertain and overstocked. To what extent they do and have done this, it is, of course, almost impossible to say precisely. But even with the strongest disposition to avoid exaggeration, we may assert that there are in this country no less than 125,000 families, or 500,000 people, who depend on the weather for their food, 300,000 families, or 1,250,000 people, who can obtain employment only at particular seasons, 150,000 more families, or 500,000 people, whose trade depends upon the fashionable rather than the natural seasons, are thrown out of work at the cessation of the brisk time of their business, and perhaps another 150,000 of families, or 500,000 people, dependent on the periodical increase and decrease of commerce, and certain social and political accidents, which tend to cause a greater or less demand for labour. Altogether, we may assert with safety that there are at the least 725,000 families, or three millions of men, women and children, whose means of living, far from being certain and constant, are of a precarious kind, depending either upon the rain, the wind, the sunshine, the caprice of fashion, or the ebbings and flowings of commerce. But there is a still more potent cause at work to increase the amount of casual labour in this country. Thus far we have proceeded on the assumption that at the brisk season of each trade there is full employment for all, but this is far from being the case in the great majority, if not the whole, of the instances above cited. In almost all occupations there is in this country a superfluity of labourers, and this alone would tend to render the employment of a vast number of the hands of a casual rather than a regular character. In the generality of trades, the calculation is that one-third of the hands are fully employed, one-third partially, and one-third unemployed throughout the year. This, of course, would be the case if there were twice too many workpeople. For suppose the number of workpeople in a given trade to be 6,000, and the work sufficient to employ fully only half the quantity, then of course 2,000 might be occupied their whole time, 2,000 more might have work sufficient to occupy them half their time, and the remaining 2,000 have no work at all, or the whole 4,000 might on the average obtain three months' employment out of the twelve. And this is frequently the case. Hence we see that a surplusage of hands in a trade tends to change the employment of the great majority from a state of constancy and regularity into one of casuality and precariousness. Consequently, it becomes of the highest importance that we should endeavour to ascertain what are the circumstances inducing a surplusage of hands in the several trades of the present day. A surplusage of hands in a trade may proceed from three different causes, namely, 1. The alteration of the hours, rate or mode of working, 
or else the term of hiring. 2. The increase of the hands themselves. 3. The decrease of the work. Each of these causes is essentially distinct. In the first case, there is neither an increase in the number of hands nor a decrease in the quantity of work, and yet a surplusage of labourers is the consequence, for it is self-evident that if there be work enough in a given trade to occupy 6,000 men all the year round, labouring 12 hours per day for six days in the week, the same quantity of work will afford occupation to only 4,000 men, or one-third less, labouring between 15 and 16 hours per diem for seven days in the week. The same result would of course take place if the workmen were made to labour one-third more quickly, and so to get through one-third more work in the same time, either by increasing their interest in the work, by the invention of a new tool, by extra supervision, or by the subdivision of labour, and so on and so on, the same result would of course ensue as if they laboured one-third longer hours, namely one-third of the hands must be thrown out of employment. So again by altering the mode or form of work, as by producing on the large scale instead of the small, a smaller number of labourers are required to execute the same amount of work, and thus if the market for such work be necessarily limited, a surplusage of labourers is the result. Hence we see that the alteration of the hours, rate or mode of working may tend as positively to overstock a country with labourers as if the labourers themselves had unduly increased. But this of course is on the assumption that both the quantity of work and the number of hands remain the same. The next of the three causes above mentioned as inducing a surplusage of hands is that which arises from a positive increase in the number of labourers while the quantity of work remains the same or increases at a less rate than the labourers. And the third cause is where the surplusage of labourers arises not from any alteration in the number of hands, but from a positive decrease in the quantity of work. There are distinctions necessary to be borne clearly in mind for the proper understanding of this branch of the subject. In the first case, both the number of hands and the quantity of work remain the same, but the term, rate or mode of working is changed. In the second, hours, rate or mode of working remain the same, as well as the quantity of work, but the number of hands is increased. And in the third case, neither the number of hands nor the hours, rate or mode of working is supposed to have been altered, but the work only to have decreased. The surplusage of hands will of course be the same in each of these cases. I will begin with the first, namely that which induces a surplusage of labourers in a trade by enabling fewer hands to get through the ordinary amount of work. This is what is called the economy of labour. There are of course only three modes of economising labour or causing the same quantity of work to be done by a smaller number of hands. First, by causing the men to work longer. Second, by causing the men to work quicker and so get through more work in the same time. Third, by altering the mode of work or hiring, as in the large system of production, where fewer hands are required, or the custom of temporary hirings, where the men are retained only so long as their services are needed, and discharged immediately afterwards. First, of that mode of economising labour which depends on an increase of either the ordinary hours or days for work. This is what is usually termed overwork and Sunday work, 
both of which are largely creative of surplus hands. The hours of labour in mechanical callings are usually twelve, two of them devoted to meals, or seventy-two hours, less by the permitted intervals, in a week. In the course of my inquiries for the Chronicle, I met with slop cabinet-makers, tailors and milliners, who worked sixteen hours and more daily, their toil being only interrupted by the necessity of going out, if small masters, to purchase materials, and offer the goods for sale, or, if journeymen in the slop trade, to obtain more work and carry what was completed to the master's shop. They worked on Sundays also. One tailor told me that the coat he worked at on the previous Sunday was for the Reverend Mr. Blank, who little thought it. And these slop workers rarely give above a few minutes to a meal. Thus they toil forty hours beyond the hours usual in an honourable trade, one hundred and twelve hours instead of seventy-two, in the course of a week, or between three and four days of the regular hours of work of the six working days. In other words, two such men will in less than a week accomplish work which should occupy three men a full week, or one thousand men will execute labour fairly calculated to employ one thousand five hundred at the least. A paucity of employment is thus caused among the general body by this system of over-labour decreasing the share of work accruing to the several operatives, and so adding to surplus hands. Of overwork as regards excessive labour, both in the general and fancy cabinet trade, I heard the following accounts, which different operatives concurred in giving, while some represented the labour as of longer duration by at least an hour, and some by two hours a day than I have stated. The labour of the men who depend entirely on the slaughterhouses for the purchase of their articles is usually seven days a week the year through, that is, seven days, for Sunday work is all but universal, each of thirteen hours, or ninety-one hours in all, while the established hours of labour in the honourable trade are six days of the week, each of ten hours, or sixty hours in all. Thus 50% is added to the extent of the production of low-priced cabinet work, merely from over-hours. But in some cases I heard of 15 hours for seven days in the week, or 105 hours in all. Concerning the hours of labour in this trade, I had the following minute particulars from a garret master who was a chairmaker. I work from six every morning to nine at night, some work till ten. My breakfast at eight stops me for ten minutes. I can breakfast in less time, but it's a rest. My dinner takes me, say, twenty minutes at the outside, and my tea eight minutes. All the rest of the time I'm slaving at my bench. How many minutes rest is that, sir? Thirty-eight. Well, say three quarters of an hour, and that allows a few sucks at a pipe when I rest. But I can smoke and work too. I have only one room to work and eat in, or I should lose more time. Altogether I labour fourteen and a half hours every day, and I must work on Sundays, at least forty Sundays in the year. One may as well work as sit fretting. But on Sundays I only work till it's dusk, or till five or six in summer. When it's dusk I take a walk. I'm not well dressed enough for a Sunday walk when it's light, and I can't wear my apron on that day very well to hide patches. But there's eight hours that I reckon I take up every week one with another, in dancing about to the slaughterers. 
I am satisfied that I work very nearly 100 hours a week the year through, deducting the time taken up by the slaughterers and buying stuff, say, 8 hours a week. It gives more than 90 hours a week for my work, and there's hundreds labour as hard as I do just for a crust. The East End turners generally, I was informed, when inquiring into the state of that trade, labour at the lathe from six o'clock in the morning till eleven and twelve at night, being eighteen hours' work per day, or a hundred and eight hours per week. They allow themselves two hours for their meals. It takes them upon an average two hours more every day fetching and carrying their work home. Some of the East End men work on Sundays, and not a few either, said my informant. Sometimes I have worked hard, said one man, from six one morning till four the next, and scarcely had any time to take my meals in the bargain. I have been almost suffocated with the dust flying down my throat after working so many hours upon such heavy work too, and sweating so much. It makes a man drink where he would not. This system of overwork exists in the slop part of almost every business. Indeed, it is the principal means by which the cheap trade is maintained. Let me cite from my letters in the Chronicle some more of my experience on this subject. As regards the London mantua-makers, I said, quote, The workwomen for good shops that give fair or tolerably fair wages and expect good work can make six average-sized mantles in a week, working from ten to twelve hours a day, but the slop workers, by toiling from thirteen to sixteen hours a day, will make nine such sized mantles in a week. In a season of twelve weeks, one thousand workers for the slop houses and warehouses would at this rate make one hundred and eight thousand mantles, or thirty-six thousand more than workers for the fair trade. Or to put it in another light, these slop women, by being compelled, in order to live, to work such over-hours as inflict lasting injury on the health, supplant by their overwork and over-hours the labour of five hundred hands working the regular hours. End quote. The following are the words of a chamber master working for the cheap shoe trade. From people being obliged to work twice the hours they once did work, or that in reason they ought to work, a glut of hands is the consequence, and the masters are led to make reductions in the wages. They take advantage of our poverty and lower the wages, so as to undersell each other and command business. My daughters have to work fifteen hours a day that we may make a bare living. They seem to have no spirit and no animation in them. In fact, such very hard work takes the youth out of them. They have no time to enjoy their youth, and with all their work, they can't present the respectable appearance they ought. I, interposed my informant's wife, often feel a faintness and oppression from my hard work, as if my blood did not circulate. The better class of artisans denounce the system of Sunday working as the most iniquitous of all the impositions. They object to it not only on moral and religious grounds, but economically also. Every six hundred men employed on the Sabbath, say they, deprive one hundred individuals of a week's work. Every six men who labour seven days in the week must necessarily throw one other man out of employ for a whole week. The seventh man is thus deprived of his fair share of work by the over-toiling of the other six. 
This Sunday working is a necessary consequence of the cheap slop trade. The workmen cannot keep their families by their six days' labour, and therefore they not only, under that system, get less wages and do more work, but by their extra labour throw so many more hands out of employment. Here then, in the overwork of many of the trade, we find a vast cause of surplus hands, and consequently of casual labour, and that the work in these trades has not proportionately increased is proven by the fact of the existence of a superfluity of workmen. Let us now turn our attention to the second of the causes above cited, namely the causing of men to work quicker, and so to accomplish more in the same time. There are several means of attaining this end. It may be brought about either a by making the workman's gains depend directly on the quantity of work executed by him, as by the substitution of piecework for day work, b by the omission of certain details or parts necessary for the perfection of the work, c by decreasing the workman's pay, and so increasing the necessity for him to execute a greater quantity of work in order to obtain the same income, d increasing the supervision and encouraging a spirit of emulation among the workpeople, e by dividing the labour into a number of simple and minute processes, and so increasing the expertness of the labourers. F. By the invention of some new tool or machine for expediting the operations of the workmen. I shall give a brief illustration of each of these causes seriatim, showing how they tend to produce a surplusage of hands in the trades to which they are severally applied and first as to making the workman's gains depend directly on the quantity of work executed by him. Of course, there are but two direct modes of paying for labour, either by the day or by the piece. Overwork by day work is effected by means of what is called the strapping system, as described in the Morning Chronicle in my letter upon the carpenters and joiners, where a whole shop are set to race over their work in silence one with another, each striving to outdo the rest, from the knowledge that anything short of extraordinary exertion will be sure to be punished with dismissal. Overwork by piecework, on the other hand, is almost a necessary consequence of that mode of payment, for where men are paid by the quantity they do, of course it becomes the interest of a workman to do more than he otherwise would. Quote, Almost all who work by the day or for a fixed salary, that is to say, those who labour for the gain of others, not for their own, have, it has been well remarked, no interest in doing more than the smallest quantity of work that will pass as a fulfilment of the mere terms of their engagement. Owing to the insufficient interest which day labourers have in the result of their labour, there is a natural tendency in such labour to be extremely inefficient a tendency only to be overcome by vigilant superintendence on the part of the persons who are interested in the result. The master's eye is notoriously the only security to be relied on. But superintend them as you will, day labourers are so much inferior to those who work by the piece, that, as was before said, the latter system is practised in all industrial occupations, where the work admits of being put out in definite portions, without involving the necessity of too troublesome a surveillance to guard against inferiority or scamping in the execution. End quote. 
but if the labourer at piecework is made to produce a greater quantity than at day work and this solely by connecting his own interest with that of his employer how much more largely must the productiveness of workmen be increased when labouring wholly on their own account accordingly it has been invariably found that whenever the operative unites in himself the double function of capitalist and labourer as the garret master in the cabinet trade and the chamber master in the shoe trade making up his own materials or working on his own property his productiveness single-handed is considerably greater than can be attained even under the large system of production where all the arts and appliances of which extensive capital can avail itself are brought into operation as regards the increased production by omitting certain details necessary for the due perfection of the work it may be said that scamping adds at least two hundred per cent to the productions of the cabinet-maker's trade i ascertained in the course of my previous inquiries several cases of this overwork from scamping and adduce two a very quick hand a little master working as he called it at a slaughtering pace for a warehouse made sixty plain writing-desks in a week of ninety hours while a first-rate workman also a quick hand made eighteen in a week of seventy hours the scamping hand said he must work at the rate he did to make fourteen shillings a week from a slaughter-house and so used to such style of work had he become that though a few years back he did west end work in the best style he could not now make eighteen desks in a week if compelled to finish them in the style of excellence displayed in the work of the journeyman employed for the honourable trade perhaps he added he couldn't make them in that style at all the frequent use of rosewood veneers in the fancy cabinet and their occasional use in the general cabinet trade gives i was told great facilities for scamping if in his haste the scamping hand injure the veneer or if it have been originally faulty he takes a mixture of gum shellac and colour colour being a composition of venetian red and lamp black which he has ready by him rubs it over the damaged part smooths it with a slightly heated iron and so blends it with the colour of the rosewood that the warehouse man does not detect the flaw in the general as contradistinguished from the fancy cabinet trade i found the same ratio of scamping a good workman in the better paid trade made a four-foot mahogany chest of drawers in five days working the regular hours and receiving at piecework price thirty-five shillings a scamping hand made five of the same size in a week and had time to carry them for sale to the warehouses wait for their purchase or refusal and buy material but for the necessity of doing this the scamping hand could have made seven in the ninety-one hours of his week though of course in a very inferior manner they would hold together for a time i was assured and that was all but the slaughterer cared only to have them viewly and cheap these two cases exceed the average and i have cited them to show what can be done under the scamping system we now come to the increased rate of working induced by a reduction of the ordinary rate of remuneration of the workman not only is it true that overwork makes underpay but the converse of the proposition is equally true that underpay makes overwork 
that is to say it is true of those trades where the system of piecework or small mastership admits of the operative doing the utmost amount of work that he is able to accomplish for the workman in such cases seldom or never thinks of reducing his expenditure to his income but rather of increasing his labour so as still to bring his income by extra production up to his expenditure hence we find that as the wages of a trade descend so do the labourers extend their hours of work to the utmost possible limits they not only toil earlier and later than before but the sunday becomes a workday like the rest amongst the sweaters of the tailoring trade sunday labour as i have shown is almost universal and when the hours of work are carried to the extreme of human industry then more is sought to be done in a given space of time either by the employment of the members of their own family or apprentices upon the inferior portion of the work or else by scamping it my employer i was told by a journeyman tailor working for the messrs nicoll reduces my wages one-third and the consequence is i put in two stitches where i used to give three i must work from six to eight and later said a pembroke table-maker to me to get eighteen shillings now for my labour where i used to get fifty-four shillings a week that's just a third i could in the old times give my children good schooling and good meals now children have to be put to work very young i have four sons working for me at present not only therefore does any stimulus to extra production make overwork and overwork make underpay but underpay by becoming an additional provocative to increased industry again gives rise in its turn to overwork here we arrive at a plain unerring law overwork makes underpay and underpay makes overwork but the above means of increasing the rate of working refer solely to those cases where the extra labour is induced by making it the interest of the workman so to do the other means of extra production is by stricter supervision of journeymen or those paid by the day the shops where this system is enforced are termed strapping shops as indicative of establishments where an undue quantity of work is expected from a journeyman in the course of the day such shops though not directly making use of cheap labour for the wages paid in them are generally of the higher rate still by exacting more work may of course be said in strictness to encourage the system now becoming general of less pay and inferior skill these strapping establishments sometimes go by the name of scamping shops on account of the time allowed for the manufacture of the different articles not being sufficient to admit of good workmanship concerning this strapping system i received the following extraordinary account from a man after his heavy day's labour never in all my experience had i seen so sad an instance of overwork the poor fellow was so fatigued that he could hardly rest in his seat as he spoke he sighed deeply and heavily and appeared almost spirit-broken with excessive labour i work at what is called a strapping shop he said and have worked at nothing else for these many years past in london i call strapping doing as much work as a human being or a horse possibly can in a day and that without any hanging upon the collar but with the foreman's eyes constantly fixed upon you from six o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night the shop in which i work is for all the world like a prison 
the silent system is as strictly carried out there as in a model jail. If a man was to ask any common question of his neighbour, except it was connected with his trade, he would be discharged there and then. If a journeyman makes the least mistake, he is packed off just the same. A man working at such places is almost always in fear. For the most trifling things, he's thrown out of work in an instant. And then the quantity of work that one is forced to get through is positively awful. If he can't do a plenty of it, he doesn't stop long where I am. No one would think it was possible to get so much out of blood and bones. No slaves work like we do. At some of the stropping shops, the foreman keeps continually walking about with his eyes on all the men at once. At others, the foreman is perched high up, so that he can have the whole of the men under his eye together. I suppose since I knew the trade, that a man does four times the work that he did formerly. I know a man that's done four pairs of sashes in a day, and one is considered to be a good day's labour. What's worse than all, the men are every one striving one against the other. Each is trying to get through the work quicker than his neighbours. Four or five men are set the same job, so that they may all be pitied against one another, and then away they go every one striving his hardest, for fear that the others should get finished first. They are all tearing along from the first thing in the morning to the last at night, as hard as they can go, and when the time comes to knock off, they are ready to drop. I was hours after I got home last night, before I could get a wink of sleep. The soles of my feet were on fire, and my arms ached, to that degree that I could hardly lift my hand to my head. Often, too, when we get up of a morning, we are more tired than when we went to bed, for we can't sleep many a night but we mustn't let our employers know it, or else they'd be certain we couldn't do enough for them, and we'd get the sack. So tired as we may be, we are obliged to look lively, somehow or other, at the shop of a morning. If we're not beside our bench the very moment the bell's done ringing, our time's docked. They won't give us a single minute out of the hour. If I was working for a fair master, I should do nearly one-third, and sometimes a half, less work than I am now forced to get through and, even to manage that much, I shouldn't be idle a second of my time. It's quite a mystery to me how they do contrive to get so much work out of the men. But they're very clever people. They know how to have the most out of a man, better than any one in the world. They're all picked men in the shop, regular strappers and no mistake. The most of them are five foot ten, and fine broad-shouldered, strong-backed fellows too. If they weren't, they wouldn't have them. Bless you, they make no words with the men. They sack them if they're not strong enough to do all they want, and they can pretty soon tell, the very first shaving a man strikes in the shop, what a chap is made of. Some men are done up at such work, quite old men and grey with spectacles on, by the time they are forty. I have seen fine strong men of thirty-six come in there and be bent double in two or three years. They are most all countrymen at the strapping shops, if they see a great strapping fellow, who they think has got some stuff about him, that will come out, they will give him a job directly. We are used for all the world, like cab or omnibus horses. Directly they've had all the work out of us, we are turned off. And I am sure, after my day's work is over, my feelings must be very much the same as one of the London cab horses. As for Sunday, it is literally a day of rest with us, for the greater part of us lay abed all day, and even that will hardly take the aches and pains out of our bones and muscles. When I'm done and flung by, of course I must starve. 
End of section 58